Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 134 of Control the Controllables. And I'm going to start a little bit different today. We've had 133 episodes to date. And I had a little look on the Apple podcast app. And I saw that we had 133 reviews and ratings. Now, who is going to be the 134th? That is my first plea to you all. The first person who reviews after this podcast and makes it 134, you will get a little shout out on our next podcast. That's my little plea to start. But I have a really exciting podcast coming to you today. The, the name on everyone's tongue right now is Emma Raducanu. Now, don't get too excited. I don't have Emma herself, but we do have Emma Raducanu's coach, Alistair Filmer, from the ages of 11 to 14. And here's a little bit about what he's bringing to you today. You're putting work in, you're putting shifts in with players, and you don't know where it will lead. And I think that's the key, is that wherever it leads, it leads. And you've got to take pride in... It looks different for different players, doesn't it? So for Emma Raducanu, it's losing the US Open trophy without dropping a set through qualities. For another player, it might be achieving their best ITF or going to the American Uni. All of that is is worth it for me. And as with any superstar, I think we all want to know what has helped get them there. You know, is it the training? Is it the talent? Is it the family? Is it the environment? You know, is it the funding? What what is it that has got Emma Raducanu to the to the top of the world, winning the U.S. Open championships? And Alistair, within the pod, goes into lots of information around her training schedule, the challenges of coaching a player of this level, and and also we get to know: Did he know that she was going to be this superstar? So sit back, enjoy. This is one of those episodes where you need a notepad and a pen. There's many, many pearls of wisdom in there. So I'm going to pass you over to Alistair Filmer. So Alistair Filmer, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm good, mate. Yourself? Yeah, very, very good. It's it's a pleasure to have you on. I know you've been asked by a few people to come on to, to these shows, to have interviews and... Um, yeah. all all linked and that's where I have to start we go back one week ago and Emma Raducanu the US Open champion how does how does that sound and tell me about that experience for you well yeah no thanks thanks for having me on firstly it's, it's um, obviously a big fan of these so appreciate that um, yeah very strange I've got to be honest um, yeah, I've been away for the last previous week so watching it in France and super surreal and um, amazingly proud of what she's done of course and massively pleased for her team I know Flex really really well so massive respect and kudos to those guys that helped her through it 
Um, in terms of my feeling, like I said, surreal, proud. Um, yeah, it's, it's really, really hard to explain. Um, I've got to be honest with you. Yeah, and, and, and on that, because I think it's quite, and there's, there's, there's a lot of coaches that have an impact, and obviously you're working with Emma between some pretty formative years of 11 to 14, you know, but we, we can go through time on this. And I guess every Grand Slam champion or every top 100 player has probably had four, five, six tennis coaches, two, three fitness coaches, a psychologist, a, a, a mom, a dad, a driver, a, a hitting partner, a, you know, a, a racket restringer, a, a somebody, a, a school teacher who allows them to come out. There's, there really it truly is a village behind, yet... Mm-hmm we only tend to see the the coach who is coaching them at that moment. So how does it feel, honestly, to be a part of other players' development, and, and it's such a key part of that, but then she's a Grand Slam winner, age 18, and a global superstar, but nobody really knows who Alistair Filmer is? No, I mean, in a way, it's pretty cool. Um you know, it's not why you do the job. I think the key thing is, is you do development coaching and that's the word, isn't it? You're developing and you get players that you think have got more chance than others and you never really know. And I think the main thing is, is you turn up and you, you do the best job you can possible. I think in terms of, of, of Rado, it was a question of, okay, I've got a good one here. Um, don't mess with heart film. It's, it's going day to day with that in mind and doing the best job possible. And, and, it's not a yes we put a lot of time in there was there was a lot of contact time she went to school next door which really helped so she would come out of school and 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 we would do little extra sessions throughout the day which was massive for her not not normal that because you know you don't normally get that luxury but it's the same stuff that i would do now and it's massive credit to her and that it's it's good to see where it goes in in the future it's it's a bit strange because obviously to connect what you did in the past to what she's doing now, something that incredible, it, it's unbelievable. And, you know, I, when she won it, it was, you know, you feel massive pride, but at the same time, it's not the same as being in the box and being and living it. You know, I, I, you know when you're there on the side of the court, I think that, that for me is the, is the pinnacle of coaching. I really enjoy that side of it when you're, when you're there, what, whatever the, the level is, and it's a tough match or a big, big tournament for that player and they're, they're all, the full investment is there. I think when the investment's in the past, it's hard to quantify it, you know, now. And, and also at the time, you don't know what's going to happen, do you? You're putting work in, you're putting shifts in with players and you don't know where it will lead. And, and I think that's the key is that wherever it leads, it leads. And you've got to take pride in, it looks different for different players, doesn't it? So for Omar Adekano, it's losing the US Open trophy, found dropping a set through qualities. For another player, it might be, achieving their best ITF or going to the American Uni, all of that is is worth it for me. Winning the US Open and being involved with Emma Raducanu is life-changing for those that are now currently involved and in the public eye. You know, and that and, and I think this is where I don't know if you're going to need counselling on it or whether other people will need counselling on it, but, yeah. the, but, but the realities are, and look, we're not in this business for money. You know, none of us would be in this business if that was our motivator. But at the same time, 
the, the coach or the coaches that work through those development ages and probably are giving a lot of their time for free. You know, I'm sure you weren't getting paid for every second that you worked with her. Now to her picking up one or 2.5 million check for winning it, then sending a message out in Mandarin that was viewed by a million people within six hours in, in China to probably bring in another 100 million. You know, where is that? It doesn't feel as if the ratio is correct in terms of where that goes. And, and I, I don't know if that's something that you've thought of. I don't know if I'm the first person to put it in your head. But how does that feel for the coach who was part of that journey yeah. who doesn't really get the, not just the credit, but the, the reward, you know, mm -hmm. ultimately the reward for the investment that was put in. Yeah, I mean, I think I know about it now. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, what would I say is that? I mean, I think, like I was saying before, you don't really do it for that. If you're doing it for that, you're in it for the wrong reasons. Um, the, the reward is something that, that, that comes in the future. You know, if you're looking for that instant gratification of, someone wins a title and you want to check through the post or you're suddenly uh, promoted or whatever. It's not the right reason at your core for doing it. I'm not saying I'm not thinking about that sort of stuff because it's human nature to think, Oh, I'm sitting in Wandsworth town here and uh, yeah, Emma's got the world at her feet. That's it. But, but at the same time, that, that is the reality of, you know, she's the one that goes out there and performs. You know, I, I couldn't dream of being able to do that. So for me, it's kind of, yeah, we, you put the work in and it, and it will have to pay off in the future. What, what that looks like, I, I, I couldn't tell you. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there, there's something. But it's also the experience gained. I mean, but before yeah. I coached her, I, I didn't coach that level. And I've got to be thankful for where, where it's got me now. It got me the job that I, that I do at Dukes. Um, it, it's helped me with the players that I coach now, the experience, the, the, sort of the gravitas that you can speak to parents with. Now before I was kind of like whatever you say is, is double question because who, who, who's this guy um, and I think in those respects that, that that's been a massive help you know is it going to be a million pounds in the back probably probably not I don't think so but if it leads on to other opportunities or learnings and experiences brilliant that's good and before I get into because as you know these podcasts uh, I want to get under under the bonnet of the the journey that got there so you know yeah. your 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 tennis journey but my my last question were you surprised well it's a good it's a really good question um obviously it's quite a surprising method of doing it coming out with with the record prior to the tournament and then just doing that incredible but but there, there was a little bit of history of it in the past nowhere near at the same level i mean winning her first ITF at the youngest age so it's a similar feat um, she played under 12s Orange Bowl lost first round to Whitney Sigway who was the top seed I think at the time I think she went on to, to win it and then she won 10 I think matches in a row through they do like this play this playback draw that feeds back it's like a feed in console up to gonna say quarters to finish I think ninth or tenth so she's won she's, there's previous history at whatever level she's at just going on a tear and she's got a mindset of, of a winner. I mean, she'll just, she'll just go, I'm winning now. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, and obviously you've got to have the game to back that up as well. So there, there were seeds of it in the, you know, it's strange, isn't it? Where you see things in the past and you think, geez, that's, and yeah. the same thing through early ITS as well, taking it to a few tournaments where 
she's just dominated opponents and obviously she's balanced a lot of uh, schoolwork and COVID and things like that. So in terms of level, I think she's always been a high level player. I just think it's, it, it, it's a very unique thing that she's done, obviously, and yeah. an amazing thing. And yeah, I don't think that's going to happen again. I actually saw an interview yesterday. They were replaying an interview when, because I think she was ranked 366 back in June, which I think in the tennis world, I think we'd all know that that was probably not a right, you know, reflection of her level. You know, her level was higher than that. But I always think you, you learn a lot from interviews and actually listening back, you know, retrospectively. And she got asked the question, it was in Nottingham. So it was a couple of weeks before Wimbledon. And it was playing a first WTA tournament. And she, and, and she basically said, yeah, I'm playing my first WTA tournament. It's, it's great, you know, just finished my A-levels. Uh, but I feel really confident and like I belong at this level. You know, it was it was said in a very downplayed way there was no arrogance there was no but it but it to to say that and and yeah. say that with such an assured way i guess was was telling us all that inside she was she was believing it you know whether she was believing she was going to win the us open i think that's a whole different level but she certainly seemed yeah. to believe her level was belonged up there with those top girls 100% i mean I think, and that's the sort of thing that I can, I can be grateful for those that period of time for the players that I work with and the different wiring of, of their mindsets opposed to other people. It's not always, it's not always about the tenor and that, that, that kind of feeds into the stuff that I do now with the, the Duke's curriculum and what we do with the programme. A lot of it's learned through these players and just seeing it's a, it's a high level mindset. And it's not, not always saying, and I'm just watching the Marty Fish documentary here, it's about mental toughness. It's not, it's not all about that. It's about how you view the world, how you, how you see your big picture and how you go about your day-to-day -day as a result of that. And I think that that's kind of led me through to where, you know, the way I coach today and, and how things pan out with the programme. And I'm excited to get to, to, to those bits, Alistair. Um, but this tennis thing's taken you and me. I'm looking at us both, got some grey hairs. The last time I saw yeah. you, maybe we didn't. Uh, but no. it's 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 taken us to some obviously amazing places. You know, you've been on these amazing journeys and, and still are, and still got so much to give to the sport. But where did your tennis bit start? Okay, so this might be where people start to tune out because it's, uh, it's not the... <laughs> It's not the dream. Um, so I'm from Kent, a little, uh, well, near Rochester. It's quite a small town. It's got a nice castle. Um, if anyone's interested to visit. But um, I'm not from a tennis background at all uh, or any form of athleticism. So big Phil Filmer and Di Filmer, they love their tennis now. But at the time, shambles tennis parents uh, in a way <laughs> in that they didn't know anything. But in hindsight, great tennis parents in a way because they didn't know anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I totally... So totally played for myself. And I played, I played, believe it or not, the first place I played was a place called Fong Lane, which is in, in Gravesend. So uh, yeah, it's a great little location, which actually is like a swimming pool with some flumes. And it had some tennis courts as well, random, randomly had some tennis courts. And turned up to someone's birthday party there and I thought, this is, this is all right. I mean, gonna keep going. So I just kept showing up. I was pretty old. I'm gonna say, I don't know, 10-ish okay. when I start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I was not good. Um, yeah, so obviously it picked up, did a few Indies, but mainly squads, just typical 
back in the day, that's kind of how everyone sort of developed. You, you turn up for the squads, maybe get one individual in if you're lucky. Then it was primarily club-based. I played at Bexley, which is great at the time. And it's, it's old school. No one does it anymore. And you had three acrylics in the middle where you'd go on a Saturday and you've got, honestly, 10 to 12 guys with the rotation. So you'd play, you'd, you get tired, you come off and you, you'd struggle to get on with like the top sort of men's first and second teams. Um, but they were happy to hit. You'd, you'd pay like a fiver to one of these guys and they'd hit you for an hour and you'd pay another fiver on the Sunday, spend all weekend there. And it was class. I used to love it. And it was all learnt through play. I mean, we played probably hours of touch, points, doubles, volleying against the wall, smashing against the wall. It's all sort of self-learning sort of stuff. And you, then you, I mean, so some of the things that we used to get up to, like the cardio was probably manhunt, I would say. Let's put, yeah. put in a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the fitness was, we'd probably do a couple of court sprints if we, if, if we lost a drill and that, and that sort of thing. And then it basically you know, filtered into uni, uni, went to Loughborough. And I realised there, that was my light bulb moment. That if I tried, then I got a lot better. And the coach there was, was super good. A guy called um, uh, John Thompson. Oh, uh, wow, he, John. John, you know, yeah. a little side story. Me and John used to play together when we were eight, nine, ten years old. There we're you go. the same part of the world. There you go. Okay. Anyway, back to back to back to the important story. But that that I couldn't let John yeah. Thompson go without mentioning. And if no, John's I mean, listening, hello, John. Yeah, and he so yeah, his impact was pretty. I mean, he wasn't there that long. I think he was there a year or something like that by the time I was there. And he basically skipped, you know, it's one of those my first awakenings where you go, bring bring me a week. What does it look like? And then he would pencil all my practices in when fitness would be and I thought well, no one's ever done this really <laughs> or, or they probably had but I wasn't interested and I was just yeah. loving it so yeah it was that through that journey and then my sort of my, my mini goal was to play for Kent I wanted to play for the Kent men's team uh, which I when I stopped a couple of years ago because due to old age and just poor level um, but still play for the 35s yeah and I love that, that experience so it's very much the old school journey through tennis where it's club Massive aspiration for county tennis, like really wanted to play for the junior team, couldn't quite get in. I mean, I must be the only one in the men's team that hasn't even played for the junior team. I was that bad. Um, but it, it kind of gave me that drive of like, like prove people wrong here. I can yeah. do it. I can do it. It's, that's quite a common thing. And uh, yeah, and then that's it. And then I tried to play a couple of brutal. I mean, honestly, my full time tennis was not that at all. It was, yeah. I saved up enough money to go and play some tournaments uh, just from doing a bit of coaching on the side. We played about three Brit tours. So did you not ever have an aspiration to be a tennis player? How, how early did you know that probably that's not going to happen? I think when I went to my dad after uni and I said to him, would you consider supporting me through a year after uni? And I was okay. We're talking, you know, would I have picked up a point? I don't know. I was struggling to pick up a point potentially in that year. And he goes, well, how much money will you earn? I said, well, I think I'm going to lose money. He's like, I'm not supporting that. <laughs> so it was always it's something that I liked the thought of, but I didn't really want to do it. I mean, I worked hard. I mean, I put in a shift. I did train really hard yeah. to the point where my body was just a shambles all the time. But did I, I didn't, know, didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't really have any support around me that was what I needed. And I probably didn't warrant it. I wasn't, wasn't quite yeah. you know, at any level of... Of, of, of help so yeah I think I, would, I like the idea of being a tennis player but really the mindset wasn't there I was, I was a bit weak very nice nice lad when it came to, to tough moments I'd probably not play my best tennis and I was 
very wary around sport and things like that. Just things where mm-hmm. I look back now and think, God, I wish I was like I am now. I wasn't competitive. I didn't really know what it was to, to, to be a winner. And all of that stuff came later on. Uh, I probably played my best stuff when I was like 32, something like that, which is, you know, your body's gone a bit then, isn't it? Oh, yeah. um, Why do you think so, that is? Why do you think? Because I think that's quite a common, common story that hmm. almost, and, and I guess my theory is, is linked to security. You know, almost yeah. as we become a bit more secure of ourselves, our philosophies, where we fit into the world, you know, what our position yeah. is, and we get we build a bit of self-confidence and belief from being yeah. coaches, that that then that transcends into yeah. being a little bit better as a competitor. I don't know what your take is yeah. on that. I totally agree. Um, I think at the time I classified it as caring about not caring. It's like I cared too much what, yeah, what yeah. people thought, what perceptions were. If I missed a forehand, film has got, I mean, even now someone in fantasy has got their football teams called Filmer's Forehand, <laughs> which now like, I, it's good. I appreciate that. At the time, you know, I probably would have missed, I mean, I, I probably went a year and a half with the yips on my forehand because we'd, we were playing with a, a guy and he was a good player. And he just goes, you've got to keep the ball down the middle, Phil. I keep the ball down the pressure of that. I'd hit it like an inch off the centre. You give you the look of like, oh, you're rubbish. Yeah, yeah. And it, it just it just killed me. And you know, it was it was. I know, yeah, I think you had trots on here before when he was talking about confidence is, is layered, isn't it? And to get to the top performers, there's that nut, and you just can't break the layers down that much. And I think my layers were made of jelly mainly. And yeah. um, now I'm fine. It's it's not it's not a big deal. But that, that sort of thing where yeah, I, mean, I don't believe in being fearless, but I believe in courage. So, yeah, yeah I think that's de- developed over time for exactly what you're talking about. It's, yeah, I, just, I just worried too much about everything apart from just, just crack on, give it your best shot and be proud of that. So how do you now take those lessons as a player and, and move them into your coaching? And it's because it's one thing to know it and feel it yourself. Yeah. But how do you transfer that over to, to the players that you work with? Yeah, I mean, my, my approach is, my general philosophy for, for coaching is kind of two things. One side of you, you've got, as Louis calls it, the performer. I always call it your character. And then skills and competency on the other side. So you've got to have the mindset of a performer on, on the one hand. And then if you, you still have to have skills and competency on the other. You, you need to be able to master as many, well, not master, but max out as many skills as you can to be a good tennis player. It's no good having the warrior mindset, but you can't play the game. And yeah. they, they go hand in hand. So a lot of the, the younger players that I coach, the, the sessions will look a bit like that, where the first drill is always a competitive drill. It'll be skills-based, it'll be in the boxes and things like that. Um, but there'll be, some, there'll be some form of performer or character-based thing on it like it might be being ruthless they've got to win as many as they can in a row it might be uh, poise calmness playing with calm intensity so like finishing volleys and making sure that you're able to play with loose arm and then tying in skills relevant to that player and we, we always tie it to like the, their development plan so their, their development plans are based on their future self so they're not uh, i try and avoid goals as much as i can um we have ambitions in there, but a lot of it is the player comes up with a statement of their, their future self, what they, what do they look like at their best. And you know, when yeah. they, maybe it's in the future, maybe it's now, depends how old they are. And every session is based around 
that and so how do we get get you from there to there what do you need yeah. and, and and we go from there but a lot of the sessions yeah there's some technical stuff there's some there's some, definitely some skills based things there's some tactical stuff but a lot of it is about what their mindset is and how how we can develop that and, it, and it, obviously it depends there's certain things that i like so i like competitors i like players that are calm intense and things like that but generally speaking it's up it's up to them as well and in each player will differ a little bit in terms of what they need and we go from there there's one thing i've picked up from your social media is this terminology the crunch yeah explain to the listeners what the crunch is (laughs) so the crunch is uh i stole it from the mighty boosh essentially so if you want to watch that that's it's a great show um about 12 years old now but maybe more but the crunch is any um, any moment in a match where you feel like you need to you, you need to raise your level, and, and the crunch is different for different people. So, like normally we talk about the business end of the set, tie breaks, five four serving, break points, things like that. So it could be it could be the crunch can be in a game, in a match, in a tournament. It, it can we have like these scales, so like micro, meso, macro. So it could be like a tournament could be a crunchy tournament for someone. So like how okay, how do you get the best out of yourself for that event. If you really think that's an important one, a lot of it is people's perception of what the crunch actually is. So to make a bit of a joke about it, it's like, you know, it is quite, well, I don't know if it's, it comes across funny here, but when we do it on the board in the lesson, we do it in squad. So it's basically the crunch on is like a big dial. And I've got to give uh, Nick Cavaday some credit for this. Else. We came up with it together back in, back in Bromley a few years ago. And on one end of the dial, you've got, um, you know, what you're offering in the crunch. So it goes from being sort of cloud, puff pastry, Mars bar. Uh, you've got Toblerone, Mars in the fridge. Then it goes sort of Rafa on clay, Jocko. I can't remember what year his year was when he, he just didn't lose matches, you know, that year. Not many, not many. Not many. He doesn't lose matches at all, does he? So, <laughs> and then it goes all the way to, Ch- it used to be Chuck Norris because he, he can't be killed. Um, we're leaning a bit more to the rock because no one knows who Chuck Norris is anymore. Um, and then basically after each drill, the kids go and mark where they are, where do they think they were. And we have a, we have a chat about it. And obviously sometimes it's pretty funny. Some people are up there with, with Chuck Norris and they've just, you know, they've just lost 10-8. <laughs> like, well, are you sure? Are you sure? What would you do? I made two unforced errors. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. So, and it's just, just, getting, just getting the conversation about, it's kind of like who you are and what you do. And we, we were talking about it the other day in the coaches meeting. Um, which I'd forgotten I said, and the coach said, oh, I like what you said there. I was like, well, what, what was it? I can't remember. He said, well, it, if you've got high operating standards or high standards, it doesn't matter what you do. And if you don't have high standards, it doesn't matter what you do because it's, it's, it's that simple. So the drill can be whatever you want. You can do the crunch drill all day long. If you don't bring the standard yourself intrinsically motivated, then it's kind of a waste of time. Yeah. And, and if you do, it's a couple of hours well spent. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I like it. And, and look, I, I've picked that up just on social media, but I I like the way you work just from social media. I've never been fortunate <laughs> enough to, 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 to be at, at your programme. I'd, I'd love to come and see your programme, but it, it, it gets the imagination, you know, and I think as, yeah, uh, yeah. as, as coaches... We have to find different ways of, of getting players to buy into, into certain Absolutely. things. We might know the detail behind it. So I, I, I like it a lot. What, what was 
Emma-like with that sort of work. So you've talked about you've talked about future self, and mm-hmm. then again, and that will be something we do, something very similar at the academy, and then working working back from there, and everyone has to link into there. When yeah. you sat down with an Emma Raducanu, age eleven, what was the talk about from herself on what her future self was going to look like? Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, I've got to I've got to say, I probably didn't do as much of it then. If you asked her, I think she probably would. I don't remember doing that. Um, uh, we do it more, way more now. So the, yeah. the, the development plans back then were very much, very they were much more reactive. Um, I remember yeah. playing a lot of tour. The LTA at the time schedule for the internationals was was ridiculous I remember sitting in a meeting where I think it was Naomi Cavaday just went nuts at under 12s talking about how many tournaments she's playing so I felt at the time we needed to do more of that we did we didn't really get get as much onto that as as we could have done especially sort of you know I'd say under 12s we definitely did a bit more 13 14 in terms of okay this is this is how you're going to play because I mean she had she had certain skills that were were top level, which was her timing, her backhand, her ability to, to move up the court and take time away was, was ludicrous. So a lot of the practices were based on that. I mean, we, we, there was, so there was a lot around, I mean, the actual talk on it, I'm not sure there was much, but there's a lot of action on it. I used yeah. to keep a spread, spreadsheet for sort of blocks about how, shame I'm on here because I can't get it up. I can, I can send it to you at some point about what the block looked like, but it wasn't just one block of work. It was, okay, this is what we're going to do from like a hitting perspective, like a both back uh, rallying perspective. This is what we're going to do moving forward. This is what we want to do on serving. It's kind of broken yeah. down like that. And I keep a track of where we were at. But her her game spoke for itself. It was, it was pretty obvious the way that she was going to play. She had a lot of skills. Um, it, Ian, her dad, would always come in with some requests as well to work on certain things. He had, and then looking back, the lots of things that he said were really, really important. He was sort of talking about I wanted to be the best returner in the world. I needed to be able to change direction on any ball. Um, and he had a fascination on the back pedal and defending with slice and yeah. playing squash shots. So, yeah, in terms of future self, I'd say everything was, was, was based in and around it. We talk a lot about what she looks like, what she would look like in the future. I'm not sure we did back then. Not, not as much as now, but, yeah, there was... It was it was very very bespoke as to how she was going to play the game. Yeah, for sure. And and in terms of because again, there's been quite a lot of hype over the last week. Uh, well, obviously on Emma in general, but around this multi sports, you know, yeah. and there's been articles, you know, written on it, and you know, uh, they, there's always a range, isn't there, of of yeah. how of how you take it. You know, like some of these articles have 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 made me have this image of. Emma playing basketball with the LA Lakers on Monday, you know, playing with Arsenal yep. on Tuesday and then playing a bit of tennis on Wednesday and mm. then, you know, curling on Thursday and then, you know, <laughs> maybe playing the odd tournament. But, you know, yeah. ra- so we get it from mm-hmm. from the, the mouth of the person who was, yeah. who was leading that programme. What yeah. was her weekly schedule looking like on a tennis side but yeah. also on a fitness side and linking into maybe other sports as well. Yeah, so well, her, obviously her annual w- weekly plan, I say annual, you know, like her, what her, so let's say when she was under 12, under 13, w- would have changed uh, a bit. But I think by the time we were working, there, there wasn't a, a huge amount of different sports going on. It, it was, tennis was the priority by that time. 
Um, her, her week was 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 a good one. Um, I wouldn't say she played too much or too little. It was well balanced. She had uh, Monday off. Sometimes do something Saturday, Sunday. She'd go and see her trainer that she still has now, Gareth Shelbourne, on, on uh, I think Saturdays at Saturn. She did a little bit of work there. And then I'd see her every morning. I think it was either 7 or 7.30. Uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. That Friday became pretty tough for me after like a back end of a 45-hour week. Um, uh, and then she would a couple of squads w- would be in there, um, which was which was good. I think it's important socially to always keep a, a, a good balance in there. But then we, we, had, we had some older, older girls and guys that were, were good challenge for her at that, at that time. It did become progressively harder because... She got very good. Um, and then the other Indies would bolt in to different times through the day where, where she sort of popped out. So there'd be little, you know, 30 minute slots where we'd do a bit of serving or she would just go on court and do some serving on her own. Can't be underestimated the amount that she actually did on her own and the amount that she came to the centre when she had a break. She'd just come, come in, either be there, have her lunch there, in and around tennis. But I would say from an hour's point of view, it was, it was close to being sort of, you know, under 12s, 12, 13 hours, and then maybe up a couple of hours each year after that. Um, and then the S&C was, we, was always scheduled in and around our tennis. So you're looking at like 50% of those hours, maybe a, a bit less were, were S&C hours, so it's like four to five hours of S&C a week um, with, with, with the guys. And, and how much, because obviously her movement stands out. I When I was watching last Saturday night, and I think... The whole world was watching, but certainly the whole of the UK was watching. I was I was in Portugal at a tournament, and everyone was planning their night. It was it felt like everyone was planning their night around yeah. it, like England playing in the World Cup final. You know, yeah. it really had that feel to it. And people were asking me, like friends who don't watch tennis, going, "Is she going to win? Is she going to win?" And I and I kept saying, "I'm not sure she is because I can't imagine." Her being the yeah. US Open champion, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel right. It's so far out. But once the match started, I was like, I don't see her losing this match because they both hit the ball unbelievably well. Yet Emma just moved so much better. You know, the second she got Fernandez into the corner, you know, it yeah. felt like Fernandez went to the slice, went to you know off balance. She, she could send her back behind. Yeah. She could kill her in the corner. Whereas Emma was so is so good in those corners and moves so well, so I guess how much of that was natural, just being a natural mm-hmm. athlete, and how much of that was built up as a athletic mm-hmm. development S and C integrated work on court, you know, all yeah. of those type of things. Yeah, um, well, the simple answer is it's a bit of both. Um, yeah. A friend of mine said the other day, you can't win the Kentucky Derby on a mule. Yeah, she's got she had really good balance movement. Yeah, but but it's it's a question of how much better you can make it. I mean, her SNC um, coach Gareth, who's been working with us for a long, long time, he knows tennis inside and out. Does a, I haven't seen him for a while, but he, he did a great job at the time. Um, and yeah, there were specific movements, especially defensively. Um, I mean, it's a long time ago, so I can't quite remember exactly what we're doing. Yeah. But the overriding thought or memory that I've got is, yeah, she always moved great. Um, or well, I think if you ask some people, they say, well, it's not great, it's good. But it's continual work. It's always things that get topped up. You, you keep working on it, you keep working on it. And the, the, yes, her base level was was high, but it, it can remain just, just good. And I think the work that she's done, and she did at the time, definitely helped her improve on it. And, and that's it. It's just a balanced approach to development. Yeah. And moving into you, how... 
because at the time you were also coaching Anton Matusevic, who yeah. is was remember seeing Anton at under 14 team tennis and you know really stood out to me. Um is obviously still on his own journey right now. You know, how how as a coach going from I imagine before those two not quite coaching inter- top international class mm-hmm. players, how how did you deal with the external pressures? that go with that, you know, the, the yeah. additional stresses that I would imagine one come from parents, you know, and yeah. two, two that come from LTA sponsors, everyone wants to have a piece of those players. So yeah. how, how was, how was that for you? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, interesting. Cause obviously you're not used to it. And my journey as well through coaching is exactly the same as my playing. It was, you know, I, I, my first goal was to make, um, you know, a decent county squad, have county champion, own own county tennis, like dominate the county championships. And then nationals, have some national players, dominate nationals. Well, I don't know if I've ever dominated nationals, but, you know, have players competing well at nationals and then step up to international level. So all of the things before that prepare you a bit, but not really. That, that would be my thing. And also there was Nell Miller, um, who was, I mean, she won like 20 odd matches in a row ITF. So she was around 200 ITF, who was good. Uh, as well, like really good as well and she was about 14 15 then so there's three really that that took up a lot of time and yeah the pressures externally were they 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 were different in in each situation so if we if we go one at a time so i start with i start with Matuzovic. um he's an only child his mum and dad kate and anton senior the great um weren't really a fan of him playing a lot they didn't really, and so, and then coupled with you've got Richard Blues coming in, uh, who wanted him to play a lot. Yeah. Uh, well, not a lot, but but more, and rightly so. He's saying, you know, what is this schedule? And I'm like, it's the best. <laughs> they won't play. He's, he goes to full. He goes to a pretty high level school in Seven Oaks. His education is important to him. And even if you speak to him now, he he's a smart smart guy, and he likes that tennis isn't the center of his universe. He, he's got all sorts of things. It's very typical. My missus is Russian, very typical Russian upbringing where they like shit, they play a bit of chess, a bit of music, high level at school, good at sport. I spoke to him last week. I, I said to him yeah. last week, so, you know, what's next? And uh, he said, oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I want to do it properly yet or i am just finished my first year of university. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to see because next week university starts again, my second year and, you know, all of those things. So it's really interesting that he's, he's basically exactly the same as he was at 12 or 13 now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, if Anton tunes into, I mean, I do speak to him quite regularly anyway. Um, I'll just say to that if you've got, you know, I love tennis. So if you've got a chance to be a world-class tennis player, try that first and then you can do your education later on. You, you, there's always a way to, to learn later in life. You, you know, the windows of opportunity in tennis don't come around twice sometimes. You know, the bus, you know, I think Mourinho said it, the bus might only stop one, one time. You've got to take it. Um, so yeah, with, with him, there was, there was some, some, I wouldn't say it was pressure from Plusy. He was great. And I love, I love Rich a lot. Um, spent most of my time creating memes about him and sending them to him. So he, he was classed in terms of, opening their eyes and Anton's eyes to what, what it takes or what it took. So look, you've got the raw material because he basically won team tennis unseeded out of nowhere oh. and pretty easily as well. And so it's a bit of an eye opener. It's kind of like, okay, this kid's good. And no one really realized that 
He's probably the only one that won team tennis and then didn't bother playing tarps. I think we probably had like a geography assignment on next week. We can go. Um, and then obviously he went to Orange Bowl, made final of Orange Bowl, and he could have won that. He 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 didn't put his best performance in on, in on the final, but he was. So that's how good he was. He was able to go and mix it with the best in the world with, you know, I would say a B program. And when parents ask about you know how much their players like, it totally depends. Totally depends on what they what they're comfortable with, how much they love the game, what their body can tolerate, and all that sort of thing. Very very specific. But the pressures around him. It, it changed over time. So the more successful, it felt like there's more people that wanted to get in the mix. Yeah. And, and you're like, why, you know, we're doing all right here. It just felt mm. like, you know, okay, like his level dictates that we need to bring in more hitters because I can't hit with him at the level that he needs to be sparred with. And yes, he needs to play a bit more. Didn't really do, he, he still, again, he has Gareth Shelbourne as his SNC. I'm just giving this guy a massive big up here, Gareth. And again, did a really good job with him. But SNC, he wasn't a fan. And again, it's one of those beliefs. So I didn't, but at the same time, he was massive. So he didn't really need the amount of SNC as sort of a, a less developed player would need. But then as he got better, it felt like there was other people throwing and, and, and it was a distraction for probably me. I became a bit, a bit more, not cynical, but just think like, well, you know, I feel like I'm doing a good job here. You just don't feel like no. you're doing a good job anymore. And yeah. I remember at, at nationals, we sat down and the, and the, and the chat was, we've got to bring on an ATP level coach. And that just hurt, it just hurt so much. And you think, well, he's, he's nearly just won against the best player in the tournament. What's in the final set breaker, I think, or yeah. seven, five in the third. And you're thinking, what have I done wrong here? I, I don't feel like I've done, it's like the only sort of thing where I was expecting a pat on the back or something. And actually uh, you're getting demoted or you're, suffering because of it um so that, that there, there was there was pressures there with emma the pressure mainly came from her she was just it's just very very demanding on the court not in a bad nothing in a bad way it's just it, it felt like in, in that situation she felt like it was the right thing for her to move on towards the end because i couldn't give her what she needed i just wasn't capable of the level of help that she demanded it just felt like oh my god this is this is tough and you know in, a, in an academy environment when you're running squads and you're dealing with let's say six seven eight other players that you're coaching it's not good enough and I, and I understood that um the level of help in terms of level of knowledge information or amount of hours I think uh no no the amount of hours is probably doable because I think like like in all things you'll find a way don't you um yeah. I think two two things one yeah, I think my level of knowledge at the time um, was reaching its point of where it was limited and an experience as well. Experience counts for a lot and her willingness to, to take it, whatever that information was. I mean, yeah. I think that so there's two ways to it. I mean, you, you know, you, I'm sure you've been through relationships with players as well, where it gets to the point where you feel like they're no longer, they don't want to receive the information anymore, whether it's right or wrong. It's just, it happens. It happens all the time. And that's kind of where it got there. And, and I think she, she's someone that looks like she needs constant stimulation to get to the next, you know, something else, something. And yeah, and, and I totally respect that. And, and because on that, it, it for again, from a personal level, Emma moves on, Anton moves on. Mm -hmm. How are you now feeling? You've, you've thrown your life at... You know, Nell, I don't yeah. know exactly what happened to Nell, but you've thrown your life at these three three mm -hmm. players. 
And this is a real story. This is not, you're not the first person or the last person this is going to happen to as a coach. But I think it's a real issue in our industry yeah. because you're, you're now left in this position where, well, why have I just done that? So tell me about how you felt. Um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was hard. Um, it felt, I mean, I, I think my instant reaction was I, I coached loads of people just, just so you're just not thinking about it as much. And then you end up coaching people that don't, you know, they're not the same level. You know, it's just, just the way it is. You don't, these players don't come around every, every, uh, every year. And it was difficult. And you feel your, your self-worth, you know, for me, it was like my self-worth was too much tied to the players. You know, I'm the, I'm the coach of Emma, I'm the coach of Nell, I'm the coach of Anton. These are all great players. And at the time, I think, you know, perspective is great because I don't, that's not me anymore. But at the time it felt like, and then they didn't go anywhere. So that they, they, they were still coached by different coaches in the venue, which was so tough. So I'm like tussling out a squad or whatever. And you've got on one court, Anton working with his coach, you've got Emma on the other court. And I'm just thinking, how did I, how did I mess this one up? <laughs> what have I done it? Because I felt like I tried hard and I felt like I gave, gave my all. But, you know, eventually the feedback was, you're not good enough. You're not good enough for us. And at the time, yeah, it was, it was, it was really difficult. And it took me a while to kind of rationalise in my, you know, in, 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 and get, get over it. It was difficult, in all, in all honesty. I mean, perspective is a, is a good thing because now I can look back and, and I, know, I know that I offered value. I know, I know that the things that we did made an impact. And because I see it again and, and you move forwards and you, and you deliver that to other players and, and you see their improvement. You go, okay, so I must have been at some point a common denominator for success here. So what percentage? I don't know, but it's easier at the time. Very tough, um, but with perspective and 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 just just sort of taking a, a backward step, moving away from you know and, and working a different job also helps because they're people that you don't know, and they 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 they're more. I don't know. They, I don't know whether they accept the information more readily or that there's no barrier. There's a, there's you know they don't know you so well. The people I work with at Bromley, we, we're like family. We work together for years and years. So that helps as well. Move, moving, moving on, different venue with with players, coaches, parents that, that, that totally respect what you've done without any pre prior knowledge. Um, yeah, I don't know if that, if that answers your question there. But. No, no, that, no, it absolutely does, and I think it's a, I think it's a really important topic to talk about because if we take, I can't help thinking a lot of this comes externally. So once a, a player's head is turned. Uh, a parent's head is turned. It we the person who is doing the job is then not valued as much as they should be, you know. And I, and I think if you go into I I, keep, I use it and I apologise to the listeners because I do use it a lot. But Iga Sviontek, you know, who we had at the academy for a couple of weeks, she was just working with the coach that she'd worked with from the age of thirteen, mm-hmm. and he yeah. never he'd never coached anyone before, and I can just imagine in Poland. There's nobody that's going eager, eager. You need a you need a higher level coach. Eager, you need a higher level coach. You know, and and she said something again on the podcast when she came on <clears throat> that that there's no such thing as the best coach. There's no ranking list for coaches. It's it's mm-hmm. all who's the best person for that player at that age and stage of their development. You know, and who's to say? And and, and if you go around a lot of these. A lot of these countries, 
Alistair Filmers in the world have the opportunity to take an Emma Raducanu from the age of 11 to 12 to be in a US Open champion. Whereas I think I think there's a, there's a there's a British tennis culture that you have to be or have had previous experience, and and that's down to actually a micro level of an area. And I I take I worked in Birmingham. In, in Birmingham, there was basically there was three coaches, and it was like you have to be coached, and, and it's all about self worth on both sides. So I think it's self worth not just of the coach, but also of the player and the parent that they feel their child is getting the best. Mm-hmm. So, so it's yeah. like, and, and, and I'm sure it happens in Kent. I'm sure it happens in Surrey. I'm sure it happens in Yorkshire. I'm sure it happens everywhere. And, and, and then on that scale. And, and I, and I just think that there's something wrong with that culture because, you know, I became in, in, in Warwickshire, I became the fourth one. So there was mm-hmm. all, yeah. there was three, but there was three that had been there for 20, 25 years. And I fought hard. I don't kind of take no for an answer and, you know, determined to do what I can do. So then I was having people say, well, you have to be coached by da, 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 or, or Dan. So I would have parents come up to me and I'd say, look, I'll, I'll tell you a little secret. I'm working 55 hours on court right now. Like yeah. it, my 56th hour with your kid will, will, be good. Not, <laughs> will not be a great quality, you know, mm-hmm. whereas this coach yeah. over here who's yeah, starting it. out, you know, is going to, and, and, and I think as you go through the levels that happens, that happens the same, you know, and, 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 and okay. Yes. You might consult and be informed by some, some experience. <clears> and, you know, like I know Eagles coach Piot, you know, actually consults with Nick Brown and has, has, has different people that come in and help that situation. But I, I, I just tend to think that, that's something that's going on in the British tennis culture more than anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I've, I've got a few thoughts on that that I always sort of bring up when I talk to, to friends of mine and we talk about this and that, you know, we talk about it with players a lot where, you know, I always talk about disabling and enabling is that we, we, we tend to have a very small net with players and it gets smaller. We, we talk about it all the time, you know, we're selecting, selecting, selecting. I'm a big believer in more is more give people a chance and it's the same with with coaching with coaches so you know I think for me it's sometimes it's in the UK we, we're looking at the same coaches producing players year on year and are you you're happy to do that so it's the same coaches from the south same coaches from the midlands same coaches from up north can't coach that many you can't let's say you can coach four players well or, or maybe three or four players well that's not many players so my philosophy is it's a more is more. We need to, to develop coaches and empower coaches that they can do it with help. Like some coaches need help. I'm not sitting here and saying that every coach is capable of producing champions or high level. We know that it's difficult, um, but with support, we could, we could produce a lot more. And I think coaches get disenfranchised too, disenfranchised too soon and end up doing something else, moving on, Get, get get fed up and, and they don't they don't coach the levels through because they don't see that, that it's possible but even even in our center it's like the, the, I feel a lot of pressure that like I, I should be coaching the best players I should be even whatever age they are I'm like well I can help every player I don't think I could I should coach every player because like you're saying it's that I'd rather have a, a coach that's going to own the development plan get up and do the 7 a.m's put their heart and soul into it come and ask for help like we've got loads of people that can help them. And then you've got 
let's say you, at, at Dukes, you've got five or six very capable coaches working with five or six players. That's 30, 30 players from a centre. And if you have that times 14 from the other regional centre, you've got, how many, you've got so many players. Starts with the coaches. Um, and like you're saying, empowering them through the journey. I, mean, I, I won't forget when me and Emma went to Florence. Uh, there's, a, there's a grade two. She hit with Mazzetti. And Mazzetti's coach, still Mazzetti's coach. Um, and and it's, it seems like it, it's, it's, a, it's possible for, for different nations and it's, it seems impossible for us at the moment. And I don't know, I don't know why. Yeah, maybe, maybe we can figure it out and I think it would really help. Yeah, no, I, th- I, think, that's, I think that's very well put. And, and, and that move, moves us into to Duke's Meadow where you, yeah. you know, you've been there for a few years. And again, like I say, I certainly pick up certain things through social media um, it seems like you're you're developing a really good culture. How how has that how has that been taking it from from when you took over to be able to then I guess really start a culture off and then really embed that culture into into what you're doing. Tell us about that journey. Yeah, so um, I guess coming up to four years ago is when we had to pitch to the LTA for the to be a regional performance centre. So. I moved in, uh, Neil, Neil Bamford's my, my boss, um, gave, me, he was, gave me a few calls a lot, you know, three or four years ago uh, to try and get me in. And I was a bit hesitant, you know, I quite like Kent, um, live, you know, it's where I live, where I grew up. So I was like, oh, okay. But the, the opportunity there was amazing because it was, a, it was pretty much, he just said, look, we, we can do whatever. It, it's free reign, which is, which is pretty cool. We don't really get that opportunity too often. So... The first thing we did was we had to do a pitch for the LTA to explain what, what, what we were going to do. Again, we didn't have any play- We maybe had a couple of players, but remember the very first presentation I gave to parents, which was about the, the big problem initially was that everything was transactional at the centre. So at the time I put it, it was everything that's wrong with British tennis is, is there right now um, because you've got transactional coaches that show up and go, you've got transactional players that don't show respect, they don't really care, there's no eye contact, there's no level of you know, them really wanting to be there apart from that they're filling their time. And, and that, that fundamentally, we've got, we've got to change that. That was the number one. So the first parents presentation to explain kind of like, right, it's going to be an exciting journey, guys. Nobody came. The first one, nobody came. Not one, that, that, that sort of showed a lot. It's like, well, okay, no one really cares then, so we do whatever. The second one, there was like two or three, which was good. <laughs> Maybe feel a bit better. And then we, then, we, then we had to pitch to the LTA to say, right, this is what we're going to do. And what it was all about was um, uh, Neil was very nice to me at the time. He said, look, you don't need to do much on court. I'll, you just observe. And, and I, was, I was writing this curriculum thing, which is like an, a yearly plan of how I wanted the structure of the program to look and you know, what the content was. So figuring around that, and that, that's kind of what we presented. And it was like a three year uh, vision of, so we had to re- the first one was to restart the heartbeat of Dukes which was basically to get the right people in, maybe move a few people on, get them to understand what, what the vision and the mission looks like. Second one was to embed that culture um, through our actions and through our behaviours. And then it was um, to, to build upon that. So other, other people contribute years three and four. So it's not just coming from the, the we call it the core leadership team. It was from, from the coaches as well, that they're able to, once they've learned what we're all about, what our core values are, what the behaviours look like, what the you know how we deliver squads all of it was like very formulaic from me initially 
then we could go from there basically. And so we're now in, in year four where I'm, I'm stepping off a few more groups. I'm happy to do it because they just run really, really, really nicely now. Um, I'm not saying we do them better or worse than anyone else, it's just the way we run them. Yeah. Um, I'm happy for that. We've probably got a staff of maybe five, six coaches that can, can run a squad that you know, I know the content before or you know, not even being there, knowing, knowing that it's going to be of the level and exactly sort of the teaching points going through. But, but our main tagline was uh, genuinely different. So we wanted to have a program that at the time, I, I think we invented this word transdisciplinary, which sounds a bit dodgy, but um, it's basically like when you go, you're, you're in a tennis session, but it, it's also to do with character. It's to do with tactics. It's to do with physical. It's all linked as though you've got, you know, different practitioners all going at doing their jobs, all working together. And you, you might be there for an individual, but, 15, 20 minutes of that individual, you've got your S&C trainer on the court. You, 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 you know, 10 minutes of that is talking about your future self that we're talking about before. And then the tennis bolts in and around that. So that, that was kind of what we, what we were aiming for. And, and like, like you were saying before, culture and, and the character is, is a big one for me, like how you, your character needs to match your environment. And it's not always about your level. I think in the past, um, I've definitely fallen for that where you're looking at the player what such a good player look at that well there's but actually i'd rather view people based on what they bring what their character mm -hmm. is and i think there's far more potential on that side of things than there is just based on i think your tennis can take care of itself if you're around a good environment um and yeah that, that's kind of where we're at so that's that's kind of how we go about it Great. Well, well, well done, mate. It sounds it sounds fantastic. You know, like I say, said earlier, I would love to come and see it. Um, you know, one day. You know, when we can, when the world gets back to some sort of normality, <laughs> and I, I don't have to sh tickle my brain to make a flight, or I don't have to, you know, all the different yeah, things. Yeah, but what what does so what does the future hold for Alistair Filmer? Yeah, this is a question I actually don't know the answer to. Um, well, right now it's Dukes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably the best environment. Well, definitely the best environment that I've been a part of, you know, with the team of coaches we've got. It's, it's, it's becoming more challenging. The more people, I'm sure you've had it the same, the more, more people you, you employ and you have working there, the, the relationships and um, the environment, it's harder to manage it. Before it was, it was a core group of maybe four, three, four, four of us going at it. Now, now we're looking at, you know, we're trying to add an international side. We've got players that, going to play more ITS because before we had, we had 10 to 14 is kind of our bracket but we, we've done very well lower down so we've, like, we've got the minis and then we want to take care of, of players in how we have we have this um, uh, thing we call cultural champions so they're the players that um, they're kind of like the, like if it was football they're the manager when the manager's not in the room so they're kind of like the leaders of the of the program and we you know in terms of keeping hold we don't like to use the word keeping hold of them but like they we want to make them feel like that's their home. So like Dukes is their home and they want to stay there. And we're fortunate enough that a few of them have decided that they are, they're going to stay within the program. And we want to use those cultural champions. Like they're good for two ways. One, role modeling behaviors for the younger kids. It's just, for me, it's one of my things that I'm massive on is player interaction. So like, I like, I like big squads because not all the time, but just so you, you can see the level, you can see yeah. the, the behaviors, you can see, you know, if it's, living and breathing and they're on the court next to you we do little stuff for integrated fitness like mini tennis tournaments where you've got an older player playing one shot on one one shot off with the, with, the, with the, and we're talking like mini orange player with a 14 year old where 
and we, and we embed the values that way. So that player goes, right, these are the behaviours that we're, that we're going to nail. And that, that's, for me, the next step for Dukes is, like, can we keep these cultural champions, develop them further through the age groups? We, we, we really want sort of Grand Slam juniors or international juniors. That, that's kind of our ambitions. We want to be, be an academy that, you know, a bit like we used to have in the UK where you, you can be there from when you first start playing all the way through. That's kind of, yeah. that's my ambition anyway. Great. And, and uh, cultural champions, uh, I, I like that. Do they choose to be a cultural champion or they ask to be a cultural champion? Mm. And then what what is their responsibility? Is their responsibility yeah. to just be them, just to be themselves? <laughs> or is there some added responsibilities yeah. you add in? Yeah, that, that's an interesting one because so the last so in the last year we this is this is an idea stolen from Simon Grieve, by the way, he works a great program down in, in Canterbury. He he has houses. So we've got two houses, La Masia and Spartak. And initially they were the captains of the houses. So they were, they were, you know, kind of the figureheads for those. But we did a, did a stop start review thing in the, in the summer where I sent it out to coaches. Like, what, do you, what, what should we start, start doing, stop doing, continue doing. And one of the coaches fed back cultural champions is good, but it should be aspirational. So it's something that you never really fulfill. You never really get there. And it's actually what we found is the, the players that were, we labeled that, very difficult for them like they're adolescents and they're not perfect so what, we, what we've done now is that it was tied to being you know this supreme not a supreme being but you know it's it, for, for a kid to be that level of role model all the time they felt like they couldn't make mistakes and they, they couldn't show yeah. their vulnerabilities and things like that so actually we changed it so this term it's an aspirational status where you're, you're constantly building you're building through your behaviors to get to get to that level of culture champion but you, ne- you never really get there so, yeah, yeah it's, it, it's, it's a great thing because especially for the younger kids, they buy into it massively. They look at it and go, ah, that's what I want to be. Yeah. But it, for the older ones, actually, it was a bit of a burden, I felt. And, yeah. you know, trying to I've be perfect is yeah. not the one, is it? No, I've, no I, I've seen that as well because we, 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 we have something similar. And I guess where, where I've actually got to as well within the academy is it's important that you bet your best player or your better players are the cultural champions as well. Because mm-hmm. if yeah. it's, because ultimately what we, you can't get away from is that's what players are looking up to. <laughs> you know, yeah. if, if, yeah. The, if the cultural champion is the guy who's mm-hmm. losing first round every week, it's like, well, why do I want to be like him mm-hmm. or her? You know, whereas, so, yeah. so we've always done it in a bit more of a way of, I've always tried to make sure we've had at least one or two or, or, or made sure that our professional team that are, that are part of it are, mm-hmm. are living and breathing the, the, the values yeah. and the behaviors. If they're not, we don't want them, you know, and then yeah. that, that does feed through. And we probably had a, had a two year period where we didn't have any professionals and our best player was maybe 17 years old and mm. 200 ITF, but with a terrible attitude and yeah. and actually it was amazing the difference that the whole the whole thing from from start to from top to bottom happened you know so yeah. um but I, I completely agree with you i think that role modeling is 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 vital it's, in, it's in any vital, program yeah. totally is and we yes yeah, so the way we looked at it was you could be a technical uh, champion so that's what you're you know you're talking about this is all stolen from damien hughes by the way barcelona way another yeah. good book yeah buy it guys it's a good one yeah, technical champions are that. So what they're doing in training uh, or on the match court, 
you take that technical champions and then you've got social champions who are the ones that are motivators they're in the gym just bigging people up just so good around like the, the environment so you could be a cultural champion in different ways you don't have to be yeah you know, the, the best player in the academy because yeah again same thing we we fell into that trap a little bit where you feel like it's your best bang for your buck and that your best players are your cultural yeah. champions easy peasy but actually our best cultural champion is not is, is not yeah. the best player it's yeah not, uh, yeah very it's, it, 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 it's something that makes a massive impact on the environment when you've got that going oh great my my last question before we move into our quick fire round yeah what does the future hold for emma radicanu uh, you have to ask her. You get to get her on next week. Um, I don't know. Honestly, I have no idea. I mean, I still can't believe she's a US Open champion. I guess I guess it, it totally depends on her. I mean, I don't know what what sort of impact winning something like that has on, on someone. It's hard to tell, isn't it? Um, I can I couldn't even begin to imagine. I hope I hope I hope a great one for her because it's a, it's a fantastic story and something that would be massively inspiring for a generation of tennis players. What will happen? Who knows? Let's see. Be interesting. Well, you'll have to help get her on the, the, the pod so we can ask her. So we <laughs> yeah, can okay. ask her. Yeah, yeah, fine. <laughs> Surely that was in the contract, the 11 to 14, you know, those years in the in the small print. Yeah, yeah. You know, go on, yeah, she, go on my mate's podcast in, uh, yeah. if, you, if you have success. I think with the yeah the million pound bonus and uh, and all the all the, all of that is signed in blood. <laughs> it's all we'll, on there. We'll, we'll wait. So quick, yeah. quick, quick fire round. Are you ready? Yes. Training or matches? Matches. Will you catch me on fantasy football? <laughs> yes. I don't know how that's got in. That's uh, I don't know. Who, uh, I, don't know I don't make these questions. I don't know that. Just just for a little note, as of as of today, I am top of the league in fantasy football, and I believe Alistair's seven foot eight. So that you know, we'll maybe we'll, know then. We'll, we'll we'll keep you updated. We'll keep you updated, pod pod listeners. Clear court or hard courts? I'd say grass. Yeah, it's so coming later. You're a grass fan. Yeah, yeah. Medical timeout or not? Not. Favourite Grand Slam? Wimbledon. How many Grand Slams will Emma Raducanu win? <laughs> oh, my God. Loads. <laughs> Coaching on court at junior tournaments or not? Great question. There's, a, there's an argument for both. Um, I, I like coaching, but for players to learn how to perform... Argument for both. I'm going to go on court for now. One sport or multiple sports? Multiple. Until what age? (laughs) You're waiting for me to say something else. Um, For as long as possible. Um, Yeah, for as long as possible. I just think it's just a good thing. But then obviously specialisation in tennis, you don't compromise the hours. But you you keep, yeah, it's important. Socially, it's very important as you get a bit older as well. Let's or no let's? Let's. Davis Cup or ATP Cup? Davis Cup. One rule change in tennis? One rule change in tennis. They take those toilet breaks out. Well, you can go to the toilet, but you can't go for seven hours. I think that's <laughs> that's taking it to the extreme. And who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? 
Emma Raducanu. I mean, oh, oh, Andrew Richardson would be fantastic. We uh, so if you could sort those two for next week, mm. that'd be great, Alistair. Um, Let's see what we can do. <laughs> but that, honestly, that was that was great. Really, really enjoyed, you know, getting to to understand how your mind works and and what you're doing. Uh, yeah. uh, keep up the great work. You know, yes, you know, your Emma Raducanu's, your Anton Matusevich's are just the 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 cream of what can happen in some people's coaching career. But ultimately, what you're setting up is the opportunity and environment for, for many, many, many players to flourish. So so well done to you and your team. Keep up the good work and thank you for coming on the show. Dan, thanks very much. Much appreciated. And uh, mate, all the best with these. They're class. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers, mate. So a big thank you to all of you for listening to another great episode. And as always, I have Vicky next to me. Uh, we are sitting... In, around all sorts of different new gadgets so she's got a big smile on her I'm face very excited and i'm even more excited about how clear and crisp you sound today dan <laughs> yeah i feel like uh it's it's gone up a notch it's gone up a notch if you could all see us right now sat at sat in our living room recording this normally around the world's smallest microphone. <laughs> I don't quite know where to look, where to speak. It's it's, it's all it's all going on, but hopefully uh, the experience for you guys will get better from now on, and the sound will continue to improve. I've been really looking forward to listening to this episode because you came off having recorded it, saying that was one of your favourites out of the last one hundred and thirty-four. Yeah, it was, and 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 I said that to Alistair actually after. After the show, and Alistair, if you're listening to this, I was being serious. It's not, I don't say say that to all my guests. I, I, I certainly appreciate every guest and every one has been really special in its own right. But I, I think a couple of things for me. One, I have, I have watched Alistair over the years from afar and I think he does a fantastic job. And I think the nerdiness of, of my coaching and, and tennis that I, I want to continue improving my knowledge and speaking to good tennis people. And and I just thought it was real. I thought it was, it was so real. And in terms of yes, of course he's pleased for Emma, you know, and what she's achieved. But at the same time, the fact that he very openly shared some of the challenges and difficulties he's had as well along his coaching journey. I I think so many coaches in particular out there will be able to associate with, you know, when he talked about, you know, the self-worth and the judgment linked to the players that you're working with. And and I think that was first and foremost the big message that I I took out from from the show. And and I thank Alistair for being so open and honest on that. I thought it was really interesting you were talking about how um, you often know when it's right for a player to move on as well. Yeah, no, de- definitely. And it's, look, it's, they say, don't they, about uh, a puppy, a puppy's for life, not for not for Christmas. Well, it, it, when it comes to tennis players, they're not for life, you know, and we, we are very fortunate as tennis coaches to play a small role in, in their careers, you know, at, at a different ages and stages of development. And yes, it can be difficult when the player moves on for, di- for different reasons. And obviously in, in this case, when he knows he had a world-class, 
a world champion, someone who could really, truly, we didn't know she could go on to be a Grand Slam champion, but I think it was quite clear to everybody in the sport, Emma Raducanu, age 14, was had a real strong chance of being a top 100 player. And actually, a, a bit of sad news this week, anyone that that does follow sport and football and the, the great and now late Jimmy Greaves, who uh, was such a a massive part of so many people's lives in in the football world the sporting world part of the 1966 world cup and 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 that story that i've been hearing about jimmy greaves that kind of has been brought up this week i link it a little bit because jimmy greaves was one of the the greatest ever strikers yet at the 1966 world cup final a lot of people that are old enough will know this, and a lot of people that aren't might not, but he but he happened to sit on the bench. So it would be like Harry Kane in the World Cup final sitting on the bench. And the guy who came in for him, Jeff Hurst, scored a hat-trick and, and became an absolute hero, you know, England winning the World Cup 4-2. Now, Jimmy Greaves, and he got interviewed on this, of course he was happy that he was part of the team, but ultimately there is going to be that feeling of what if... And I wasn't quite a part of that. And, and when I was speaking to Alistair, it just had that, it had that similar sort of feel of, of, of course, you know, absolutely over the moon for Emma and all of the team around Emma right now. However, I'm back up at seven o'clock tomorrow morning to go and coach another 11-year-old on the courts uh, rather than living the high life in, in New York and, and everything that that brings. And, and again, that that does happen at, at all levels, you know, and I could certainly think of a couple of stories of that happening with me as a player and the coaches that were involved. Um, but I just to complete that story, because I'd want to be also very fair to Alistair on this, I loved that his mindset had shifted. And I, and I loved what he said that, you know, success does look different for different players. Yeah, and you know, I think it was the clip we used at the start of of the of the episode. Success to Emma Raducanu, relative success is to win a Grand Slam, but success to little Jimmy, who you work with for seven years, might be to, might be to get a scholarship to a Division three college in in America. It might be to go on and be be a lawyer and use his tennis as as part of that. But ultimately, as a coach, we have to judge ourselves on the job that we're doing and take and the pride that we're taking the job we do every single day. And I just thought that was such a lovely message, really. I think that echoes exactly what we think at Soto Tennis, though, as well. One of our biggest achievements was getting a player to the tennis team at a British university. You know, that was her goal when she came to the academy and she achieved it. And that is one of my favourite achievements, really, out of all the players who have passed through our doors. No, absolutely. And I think any, anyone listening, keep aspiring to be the next Emma Raducanu. Absolutely. You know, the next Andy Murray. I've just seen he's actually just, he's just won tonight against against the world number 26. And he, he's, he's still going as well. How, however, you have your own journeys, you know, and you, you give your very best coaches at all levels of the game. You know, keep taking pride in what you're doing. You know, you're all doing fantastic jobs. And it's really important we're not judging ourselves on the players and the level of player that we're coaching. And, and I think that certainly, that hit home to me as well, because that's something I've felt before. So thank you, Alistair, for bringing that wonderful message. Yeah, and it really does feel Alistair's taking all of his experience and really using that to set the culture at Duke Meadows, where he is now. Yeah, well, I think the, the, the one thing I'd also like to mention at this point, 
Anton Matusevic, who he worked with in those formative years, is one hell of a tennis player. He hasn't won a Grand Slam yet, but he is he is one of the best players in the world for his age. You know, so he's done a great job with that. There was also Nell Miller, and 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 I think the point that I love, and again, I think it's a great message for coaches to take. If Alistair Film is coaching two or three players over a seven, eight year period, because it's a big commitment to coach all of these players. And then let's say, and this is probably, we've talked about this in the podcast before, let's say there's 20 coaches around the country doing that. Well, that's only 50 or 60 players that have been looked after to that level. So what he's saying now, and, and I completely agree with it, you know, he's looking to set this culture up in a program where he can have five, six, seven coaches working with him that are all then looking after five, six players each. He's passing on his knowledge, his experience. I love it when he talks about the character, developing the character mm. first and foremost, not just about the tennis skills. Ultimately, character will only get you so far. So, of course, you need tennis skills as well. However, the character is vital in this. Now we do the maths, seven coaches, five players each, 35 players in each centre that have been looked after to a very, very, very high level. You know, you do that across the country. It's certainly at Soto Tennis Academy, our philosophy as well in, in what we're trying to do. And all of a sudden, the whole landscape looks a, a lot brighter. And and I, and I have to say, you know, Dukes Meadows is very, very lucky to have Alistair Filmer doing what he's doing. You know, keep up, keep up the great work. I hope lots of people that have listened to this podcast uh, have taken as much from it that I certainly did, having the conversations and listening back. And as we always say, our promise is that we're going to continue bringing lots and lots of amazing guests. Next week, we have Ryan Jones, who's the current coach of Jack Draper. There's more pearls of wisdom in that, and there's plenty more to come. But until next time, I'm Dan Keenan, and we are Control the Controllables.